Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It is lost in science. <laughs> Excitement. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Are you excited to be here, Manisha? I'm very excited. How about you, Claire? <laughs> Sorry. I'm really excited as well, Chris. <laughs> You're not as excited as us, I feel. No, it's because i got headphones on and I can hear you too. <laughs> okay, okay, right. Well, um, you will be excited when you hear what we all have to talk about on this today's show, which is a half an hour of science on your radio phone. Half uh, an hour of exciting science. Of ex-science. Ex Really <laughs> I'm going to be following up a story that I think Stu did a few weeks ago. Oh, um, yeah. But he can't be here today. Um, rest in peace, Stu. He's not dead. Don't <laughs> say that. He's listening at home. He is listening at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, we love uh, you, Stu. Hey, we, we talked about um, billionaires, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and their base exploration ventures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, SpaceX. Yeah, the supervillains. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. rich people. Yeah, Scientists. yeah. So I'm going to talk about more um, rich people doing strange scientific-related things. Mm. Um, more Silicon Valley billionaires and what are they up to. Yeah. Um, well, you you know. they, they think they're in their own world, They do think they're in their own world and they're doing some crazy sciencey things. So I think it's worth checking out. That uh, is definitely We're going to be returning to our Elon Musk and our Mark Zuckerberg, but we're also getting a bit of a guest from a couple of others, like Yuri Milner. You'll hear what he's planning as well. Manisha, what are you doing today? I am also going to give a bit of an update on a previous story that we had done. Um, I'm going to update our listeners on the state of the devil facial tumor disease. So if you all remember the uh, tumor disease in Tassie Devils, I'm just going to let you know what's going on and what some scientists are up to. Great. That's awesome because there has has been some um, new research coming out recently about it, hasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Some promising promising outlooks oh that's excellent yes so good go devils devils. yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely well i'm actually going to be talking a bit about a new app that's come out a new app for contraception and fertility and it's been released by a cern physicist slash app creator And it's called Natural Cycles and it's all about using these – oh, she's created this algorithm that can predict when women are fertile and when they are not just based on their basal body temperature. So it's a really interesting applied science that has – they're saying it has – it's pretty much just as effective as the pill. Yeah, I've heard about that For – as a contraceptive, yeah. when human error is not taken into account. Fortunately, humans never make errors. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk more about that later. Cool. But it's very interesting science. Stay tuned. Yes, space is the place that is where the billionaires of Silicon Valley are going. Um, not just to oh, escape good. us. Maybe maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah, just yeah, shoot no, them off to not, space. Maybe not. Yeah, so this, we, as I said, we, um, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Stu told us about various new entries in the space race, in particular Elon Musk's SpaceX program with its weird vertical landing rockets and how he and Mark Zuckerberg are 
collaborating to send up new internets into orbit and this kind of stuff, which is all very good. But other billionaires are up to things as well. And let's kind of do a bit of a rundown of some of the weird sciencey things that our friendly rich people are doing. In the space theme, you might have seen in April announced Yuri Milner, who is a former physicist now, a Silicon Valley rich guy, has announced with, in collaboration with Stephen Hawking, a plan to launch laser-powered nanocraft into space. Did you see this back in April? No, I didn't see that in April. But can you go into a bit more detail about laser-powered nanocraft? Yeah, what basically is, is little tiny spaceships, like really tiny, and then they're going to fire lasers at. So they put them into space, then they fire lasers from Earth Uh or from Earth orbit at these things, and the pressure of the light accelerates. Push it? Yeah, we'll push it. And so basically, you don't need an engine on these things. You basically push it along using a laser, and you can accelerate it for a very long time because it doesn't need to carry fuel or anything like that. You're basically blowing it away using a laser. Does that mean you always ha- it always has to be in a line of vision from wherever you are? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. But, yeah, so you can accelerate it for a really long time. They reckon they get up to, like, one-fifth the speed of light. And this will be a way to get to... It's pretty fast. Yeah, this will be a way to get to Alpha Centauri, the nearest, like, star system, in about 20 years. Which is a long time still. Obviously, 20 years is a long time for a science project. But it's within a human lifetime, Mm, clearly. Absolutely. Um, Now, you'd be sending little tiny electronic devices on these things. Now, they'd have to be very, very small. But I think they're hoping that by the time this plan is up and running, there'll be miniaturization, but it worked enough that you'll be able to get really good little packages on the spacecraft. Um, you can't slow them down when they get there. You, know, you can just accelerate them really fast. So they'll do a really quick flyby. Like one-fifth the speed of light, you're going to go past a star fairly quickly. It's going to be, yeah, blink and you'll miss it sort of thing. And will they be able to transmit information back to us? Well, that's the idea. You have to somehow find a way to fit a transmitter on board as well. Yeah, so there's a, quite a few technical complications with doing that. And there's a lot of scepticism about this whole plan. But it is an interesting idea of one of the most feasible ways of getting to another star system. It, it, just, it just sounds so innovative as well. Like no one's really thought about that before. Which is basically the hallmark of these rich people, I think you'll, you'll discover. Okay, so next cab off the rank is our good friend, Mr. Um, Social Network himself, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, you may have seen. They announced their plan to cure all disease. Yeah, I Felt that. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. So, so I mean, isn't isn't that just like you know, pulling the rug from under the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Like, well, uh, that's the obvious. Shouldn't they just join together and then? Well, it's of... a very different approach. Now, this is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is their thing. It's, this is not its first thing. It's been going for a while, and it's got kind of weird things. It's not exactly a, a charitable thing for some reason. It's kind of an investment thing. But the announcement that was back in, it was September, I think, they said they were going to build a cross-disciplinary biohub in San Francisco. And they're going to spend $3 billion over 10 years on this thing. How does $3 billion over 10 years sound to you, Manisha? Research-wise? Yeah. Maybe not that much, depending, not, on, depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah. It doesn't, I, it doesn't sound if, if someone, like a lot. If someone gave you $3 billion. If somebody gave 10, me personally $3 billion, <laughs> I'd be damn happy. Well, but I think for research, it's a bit like... No, because, okay, so Australia... To cure all disease, maybe, yeah, yeah, it yeah. falls a bit short. Australia's National Health and Medical Research Centre, or 
Seed Sense or something like that, which funds medical research in Australia, spends $800 million every year. So that's easily surpassing what they're going to spend over 10 years. Yeah. Uh, America's National Institute of Health has an annual budget of over $30 billion per year. So it's unlikely that they've these big national institutes haven't been able to cure all diseases in the time they've been running with much higher budgets. It's unlikely that mm. the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is going to do it in 10 years with a fraction of the cost. What but, are they trying to do with this? Well, so it's more about disciplinary. They're trying think? to think they could change the way it's done. So they're going to get people from all different disciplines to work together. Again, it's not a new idea in science. People have thought yeah. of this before. I think they're thinking they're going to spark some new way, a new approach to doing things. As you, you mentioned, the Bill and Gates, Melinda Gates, I'm going to compare it with them as well. They spend over a billion dollars every year on infectious disease control alone. So, you know, the budget is not huge, but it's more, they just think they've got a new approach that they can do because it's one of those things of, yeah, we think we can do it different and better that you hear with the billionaires. I love it that their approach is to collaborate, but they're starting effectively from scratch and not collaborating with any of the other initiatives that are currently happening, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Pretty much, yeah. And the most outrageous of all, though, this one is not confirmed. This is a rumour. Uh, this is this is our our good friend, um, the Musk deer himself, Elon Musk, creator of the SpaceX program, creator of the the Tesla electric vehicle, the the Power Wall, the Tesla Power Wall, which stores your solar energy in batteries in your wall. Want to be creator of the Hyperloop, which is a vacuum powered MacRast transit system. You heard of that one? Yeah. Yeah. You know how at the supermarket they put the money in the little tube they yeah, get sucked they away? Get sucked they up. want to put people in those tubes, like in Futurama. Oh, anyway. <laughs> cool. That's where you got the idea. So, okay, this, this, but this one, this came from a, um, a profile of a different Silicon Valley entrepreneur, um, Sam Altman, that was in the New Yorker magazine. And it contained the curious sentence, many people in Silicon Valley have become obsessed with the simulation hypothesis, the argument that what we experience as reality is in fact fabricated in a computer. Two tech billionaires have gone so far as to secretly engage scientists to work on breaking us out of the simulation. <laughs> now, um, Elon Musk has recently said that he subscribes to this idea of the simulation hypothesis. And in fact, in June this year, he said uh, at a conference that there is a billion to one chance that we're living in base reality. So essentially the idea is that we have got exponentially increasing computing power. It should be possible for us to one day simulate living beings or even an entire planet or even an entire universe inside a computer. And once this is possible, then we will have simulated realities inside computers. Now, there would be a lot of those because there could be a lot of computers. So he's basically saying that there are going to be many more simulated realities than there are real realities, so it's more likely that we're in a simulation rather than the real one. So That, that last step at the end yeah, that's sort of seems, <laughs> seems like a big jump. It is a big jump. Look, he said that, it says tech billionaire, it sounds like it could be him. Everyone's assuming that it's mm. him is one of these tech billionaires. But notice that in that quote, they didn't say they want to test the hypothesis. They said, break us out of the simulation. <laughs> so if we are living in a simulation, what does it mean to break it's out like of it? the matrix or something. This yeah. so bizarre. So the problem with the simulation with the hypothesis, uh, one of the problems with it is what happens if we are in a simulation, then what happens when we reach the point where we are able to run a simulation? You've got basically a simulation inside a simulation. You know, at some point, you've got to reach a point where the computer cannot handle the strain of these 
these simulations inside simulations. And that would crash the system, you have to think. So is it possible that Elon Musk and co are trying to deliberately crash the system? They're trying to control or delete us all. Yeah. Are they trying to destroy the universe <laughs> to see what's outside the universe? So they can't actually break us out of the matrix. I don't want to say that Elon Musk is definitely trying to destroy the universe, but this is a, a distinct possibility. This anyway. is because this space project's not going very well, yeah. isn't it? He's just going like, to destroy the universe. He's just going to destroy the so universe. So I think if you doubted that he was a supervillain, I think <laughs> we have some evidence for you. Now, look, I, this, is all, this is all rumor in here, so he may not be trying to destroy the universe. but And it's an interesting idea, the simulation hypothesis. Let's just hope that he doesn't succeed. Okay, so a while ago we did a story on devil facial tumor disease, which is wiping out Tasmanian devil populations. But just as a refresher, the devil facial tumor disease is an infectious cancer that is widespread amongst devil populations. This cancer typically appears on the face of the individuals, and it's actually one of the world's few infectious cancers, which means that it's transferable like an infection. And the case of this particular tumor disease, it's passed through contact, particularly through biting. And it's actually the whole biting aspect that's thought to be the reason that this disease has become so devastating and so widespread because our Tazi devils actually use a lot of biting in, in a lot of their social um, behaviors. So they bite for everything. They bite when they're mating and they bite when they're just socializing and playing. Ah, hello. Yeah, ah, yeah, basically. It's like yeah. their handshake. or like waving yeah they bite when they're acquiring territory yeah they bite all the time so because they're biting all the time and this disease is transmitted through biting this is what researchers are rationalizing as the reason why it's so widespread so this disease there's a lot of support behind it in the idea of trying to find a vaccination for it or trying to make um, individuals immune to it because it's actually quite devastating It's driving the population to extinction because once a population has it within the population, uh, there's a 100% death rate after 12 months of transmission. So it's really, really devastating. But there actually seems to be some sort of glimmer of hope as it seems that there's a population in Cradle Mountain where the growth of the tumors is actually receding and the transmission is declining. So Uh there's there's some sort of... um, immunization happening in this population, which seems to be somewhat natural. So the suggestion is that the individuals in this cradle mountain population are developing an immune response. And the way that it kind of came about or the way that the researchers have sort of realized that this might be happening is because some individuals appeared to have the tumor at one point in time, and then the tumor started to get much smaller until they no longer had the tumor anymore. And the, Wow. Yeah. So just nat- is that the first time they've observed seen that in that natural, in the wild? yeah, yeah, in the wild. So this yeah, population wow. just like somehow for whatever reason it just the tumor started to recede, and then the individuals were healthy again, and they were healthy enough to breed, and then they were able to pass along those genes to the next generation. Holy moly! Cool. Um, but then, unfortunately, the tumor did win out in the end because they those oh. individuals got it the second time around and they died. <laughs> So there's something weird. So maybe there's strains of these tumors or something happening. But they got the tumor again and they died out. But the interesting thing was that they were able to breed and pass their genes along. Because then in the the next generation, more and more individuals 
were immune or were able to fight off the tumor and again breed and send maybe those genes along. So it's it's not really yet known if it's a genetic sort of causation or if there's a mechanism behind it. But um, that's what the researchers are actually starting to focus on now, trying to figure out what makes this population different from other populations and how we can bank on it and help our dying populations. Yeah. I guess there's a worry though, like if the devils are evolving immunity that then the cancer could then evolve to be more... Aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's like any other sort of infection. Like, that's just kind of the battle of fitness that, that yeah. everything kind of goes through. But I guess it's still a bit promising because in this particular population at Cradle Mountain, like, the statistic around the tumor is, or the disease, is that 100% of the population dies once it's um, exposed to it. But this population is actually persisting at 10%. Okay. So even though 10% may not seem like a lot, it's just at least 10% of their population is making it to the next generation and and it's making it there naturally. So there is something interesting happening there. We just don't know yet what's going on. And then also we have researchers that are developing their own vaccinations. So they, um, we earlier this year, we had two populations released into the wild that had received a vaccination that was created by researchers. And so now we're trying to see how those individuals are persisting. Unfortunately, a lot of those individuals were then hit by cars in the national park, which will sort of decline their rate of success because Mm. they won't be able to breed but um we'll see what happens with the other ones but there is something happening and there's some sort of immunization or vaccine that seems to be working for these little guys that's awesome Mm. across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science So when it comes to methods of contraception, there aren't really a lot of options. Um, Women can either take hormones like the pill or interuterine devices to regulate their cycle so they don't pop any eggs and become pregnant or use a more physical barrier like a condom. But hormonal contraception presents a whole lot of other issues for women. For some women especially, the possible side effects can include increased migraines, mood swings, depression, just to sort of name a couple of things mm-hmm. that that you can have. There's and been yeah, there's been some research recently about depression related to the pill, hasn't there? Some yeah, yeah. Yeah. Reviews and things. There there have there's was a significant increase um for women like women on the pill and off the pill, it was significantly mm. more women who were on the pill who who had clinical depression. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got things like, yeah, like physical prophylactics like condoms. Although being the only way to remove the risk of STIs aren't favoured by couples in long-term relationships. So, you know, if you don't want to use hormones and you don't want to use condoms, there aren't a lot of options out there for contraception. But... You know, as physicists do, they sometimes come along to save the day. They Isn't think, that right, they, Chris? They think they can do anything. <laughs> they, they, physicists like to see some other problem that's unrelated to physics go, we can solve this. Well, I think that's what's happened. So a physicist who used to work at CERN on the Large Hadron Collider, who was in, instrumental in the discovery of the Higgs boson a couple of years ago, yeah. she's come up with another way to use contraception. Right. And it's pretty much by applying science to a very sort of traditional method of contraception. So Alina Berglund Sherwitzel, that's a name, what a great name, has pretty much just taken a break from from her subatomic particle discoveries and turned her mind to developing this algorithm and then an app to go along with it which uses women's temperatures 
to tell if they are fertile or not fertile. And the app is called Natural Cycles. It isn't the first fertility app that's out there by any means, but the algorithm that Alina's come up with, it works so well that it can predict if a woman is fertile or not with 99.5% reliability. So, and I will, I will get back to this later, but what were we going to say? I was going to say, I want to know what kind of studies they've done. Yeah, yeah. So um, they have done a couple of studies in the European Journal of Contraception and Reproductive Healthcare. Okay. So there have been two studies. One has been on the effectiveness of the algorithm and one to actually determine whether a woman is fertile or not. Okay. And then the other study they've done has been actually taking the data from the first sort of like 2,000 women who have downloaded the app oh. and then use that real-life data to sort of come up with a number of the number of pregnancies that have <laughs> resulted while these women have been using this as a method of contraception. Okay. So there are two, I guess, you know, different sorts of results that have right. been presented. One, one, you know, of the effectiveness of the algorithm, uh-huh. the other one of the effectiveness of it as a contraception once you, once you throw human error into the mix. And do we have numbers? We do have numbers. So like I said before, 99.5% reliability, that is the algorithm. Mm-hmm. But when you throw human error into it, it drops down to 93%. Right. Yes. effective, which is still pretty good. It's pretty pretty good good. for not having to take hormones or use a condom. Yeah, and if you don't have a choice, you know, if if you do suffer from something like, you know, migraines or depression. It could make it really impossible for you to take hormone treatment. So so how does it work? Does it it – yeah, I know because, I mean, yeah, like you say, it, it's, it's probably music to a lot of women's ears um, and it almost sounds too good to be true. So so how does it work? Yeah, so you download the app, um, you have to have your thermometer ready uh-huh. um, and you input the date of your last period and every morning you wake up and you take your temperature before you get up. So that's called your basal body temperature. Right. And from this information, the app then works out your day of ovulation and then using the algorithm and using, I guess, like key biological sort of variables variables mm. about, you know, the different follicular cycles and ovulation cycles of yep. a woman's period and menstruation and that sort of thing. They can then work out when you're going to be fertile and when you're not. How many cycles do you have to input in before it gets to be reliable for you? Because every woman's a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not quite sure about that, but I think they always are on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. So your non-fertile days would be shorter and then the more input Uh, you give it, the more non-fertile days you get yeah so the way yeah i mean unsurprisingly there's a bit of science behind the app and it's Mm -hmm. all informing the algorithm and understanding the basic sort of female biology is the first step to understanding how the app works there are two external observations that can be made and when you sort of put these two observations together they provide a pretty strong indication of ovulation so first of all the overall body temperature of a woman rises just after ovulation And secondly, a hormone called luteinizing hormone surges one to two days prior to ovulation. So this can be measured independently of temperature using pee sticks and you can input that into the app as well. So Mm. if you've got that piece of information and then you have, you're measuring your temperature every day so you can measure any differences in temperature, then you start to get an idea of exactly when you're you're ovulating and then you can work out exactly when you're fertile. So... I think you're fertile for six days before you ovulate. 
And yeah, then, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how much does uh, temperature vary by? I'm curious. That's a really good question. Because see, yeah. it seems to me that that's kind of where part of the thing where human error can come into it is yeah. that getting that getting that, that right. Yeah, because yeah. because yeah. it's supposed to be. You said before you get up. So it's intended to be sort of like your resting state. That's right. Your complete yep. resting Basal state. Basal body temperature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, so that has to be constant. Otherwise, or there's like, so but much like, variation. So, yeah, I reckon, I reckon what's going to happen with a lot of women is, oh, I didn't put my thermometer on my bedside table. Yeah. So I've got yeah. to get up, go to the bathroom and grab, my, grab the thermometer. Yeah. Yep. And even in that, you're going to really raise your body temperature just by the fact that now yeah. you're awake as opposed totally. to being. Asleep. But also any errors in using the thermometer and that kind yeah. of stuff mm. as well. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So just for, like in, in terms of the app, app and the graphic display, so you input this data and then it'll e- either give you a green day or a red day. So red day means you're fertile and a green day means you're, good you're to not, go. you're good to go, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, that's all the, that's all the biology in there. I guess the biology sort of stands true because this is the same sort of stuff that fertility specialists use. Like when you're trying to have a child, they tell you, yeah. like these are try within this week or try within yeah. these. Well, this I was thinking this day. is the other sort of side of you know not of flip side of this um yeah. thing. It could be used for that purpose as well. Exactly. Probably, yeah. You could you could use it for either either purpose yeah, so just as effectively. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, yes. If you're colorblind. But- <laughs> Oh, imagine, oh imagine it was just grey. Oh, Every day is grey. Oh <laughs> what do you do? Hope, I don't know. Hopefully there's a symbol as well. There isn't Happy just. face or a sad face. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Look at the animation. Oh, um, oh, an animation. That's interesting. <laughs> that can go in a lot of directions. Um, but <laughs> Sorry. But looking at the data from... The research papers, one thing does become clear. So in the research paper where they looked at the 2,000 women who had started using the app and they analysed, you know, who got pregnant and who didn't, there was actually this massive drop-out rate of the women using the app. So the researchers, they didn't recruit the women specifically for the trial. They just collected the data from willing women who wanted to use the technology. But they found 34% of women who started using the app dropped out in the first three months, which suggests to me that, you know, women lose motivation or, you know, there's there's something going wrong there. It's sort of like there's also that like recent studies have been showing that fitness apps aren't as great because people Mm. aren't like actually logging what they eat or logging their – all of their that requires you to extra work, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so unless I, like unless it's prompting them, I think it's that yeah. they're really not likely to use Even it. Pokemon. I mean, I've stopped using Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. And I'm, yeah, you guys I mean, were you know, crazy you, you about just, it when it first came yeah, out. Yeah, maybe, maybe three months is just that time that people get excited about a new app and then it yeah. just sort of like you just – something else comes along and you go you, you start going with that particularly which, if it which requires quite, that discipline of every every day yeah like, yeah, so like you, yeah, yeah like this is yeah. it's and it's sort of well not sort of it's kind of an or not kind of either it's important it's an important thing that if you're if, if you're trying what, not to get pregnant it's a very important thing or even yeah. if you yeah like on whatever side of the coin you are on like this is something that really takes a lot of effort yeah, and the other thing, the other issue is what I mentioned at the start. So you've got the 99.5% of reliability of the algorithm, but when you put human error into that, uh, the effectiveness of the app as a contraceptive drops to 93%. So, Do you know how that compares to, say, the pill? It's a lot lower than the pill. I think the pill, if taken directed or 
taken as, as directed yeah, is up in the like, high 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But like we should an, compare the human, human error, error side for of both it. that as mm. well, shouldn't it's we? Yeah, we should. Yeah. It's effective if you take yeah. it every day at the right, or right time yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But even so, I think it's a pretty interesting technology it and pretty amazing is, yeah. applied sort of science that's going to be pretty valuable to a lot of women as both a contraceptive and, as you said, as a way of falling pregnant. But I would certainly think twice and think about how committed and organized mm. I was as a person before I decided on mm. on to, to just use rely on this a contraceptive. Yeah. yeah. But honestly, anything that's giving women more options based on real science and clever mathematics is a bloody good idea. I think so too. That's all we have time for today. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne that airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. Please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We are also Lost in Science on 3CR on Twitter. You can also go to our website at www.3cr.org.au slash lostinscience where you can listen to our podcasts or you can just listen to us at the same time on the radio next week when Stu... Manisha, Claire, and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.